I'm not sure if you've had this experience where you go to see a movie and it's in a theatre somewhere and, and you think that the movie has now ended. You think that's the final scene. That's the end of the movie and you've started to get ready to head out the door. You've started to put your shoes back on, you're putting your mobile phone back on because you think it's all finished now, you're just waiting for the credits to start rolling. I've had that experience a few times. Uh, not so long ago we went and saw a movie at the Dendy Theatre at Circular Quay and um, I, I thought the movie was now finished. I'm flicking the popcorn off myself and putting my shoes back on, trying to find where the car keys are and uh, I'm headed to the door. But then all of a sudden there's one more scene. One more part to the movie that kind of rounds it out and completes it. Well, I think you could kind of get that feel with John's gospel as well. So you have a look at John chapter 20 and look at the closing words of John chapter 20. That would have been a great place for John to finish his gospel. We've had the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You've had doubting Thomas who's now seen the risen Jesus and declared my Lord and my God. And then you'd have this in verse number 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Wouldn't it be a great place for the gospel to finish? I mean, it'd be so well rounded out and a great words to finish with. But it doesn't end there. There's one more chapter, one more episode, one more miracle and one more discourse from Jesus. When you turn to chapter 21, I think there's things in here that come as a bit of a surprise. The chapter opens with what appears to be the disciples back at their ordinary lives. They've left Jerusalem, they've headed north to the Sea of Galilee, and they're back fishing again. I mean, that was what they were doing before Jesus had called them, and now they just seem to be back doing it again. I mean, does that seem strange to anyone else? It looks like they've gone back to their ordinary lives. If they'd done that following the death of Jesus, you'd understand that completely. If they saw Jesus die on a cross and said, well, that's it, we might as well just give up. I mean, there's nothing now if our leader is gone. You can understand then if they'd gone back to the boats. That would kind of make sense in some ways. But they've seen the risen Jesus. They know that Jesus has been raised from the dead And yet they're heading back to their ordinary lives. This is the crew of uh, Apollo 11, the first men to land on the moon, the first time that man had set foot on the moon. I remember hearing an interview not so long ago, a few years back, with Buzz Aldrin, who was one of the Apollo 11 crew, and he was talking about his experience. He said that they knew that when they set foot on the moon their life would never be the same again. And it's not hard to see why, is it? I mean, when you've stood on the moon and looked back at the earth 400,000 kilometres away, well, your life never can be the same again, can it? And surely that's got to be true for the disciples as well. I mean, think about what they've experienced here. They've spent three years with Jesus, walking with him, talking with him, being taught by him. And they've seen some of the most incredible things. They've seen Jesus feed 5,000 people. 
They've seen him raise people from the dead. They've seen him calm storms, cast out demons, heal the sick, change water into wine. They've seen him die on the cross and then rise again from the dead. You don't just go back to your ordinary life after that. When you've seen all of that, well, your life will never be the same again, will it? But for whatever reason, they're back fishing. They head out in the boat for an evening of fishing, but they have no luck. And as the sun is coming up, Jesus calls out to them from the beach. They don't know who it is that's calling out to them. But have a look at the conversation. John chapter 21 and find verse number 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now, anyone who knows me knows that I loathe fishing. I think it's just the most deplorable pastime ever. I have no interest in it. I have no time for it. And my experience has always been pretty much what the disciples' experience has been here. Huge waste of time and you don't go home. The only fish that you get is the one that you stop and buy battered in the shop on the way home after you've wasted this entire day. But these are experienced fishermen that we've got here. These guys know what they're doing in the water and they would have known that moving the nets two metres isn't going to make the slightest bit of difference. They've been out there all night and they haven't caught a thing. As if dropping the nets from this side of the boat to the this side of the boat is going to make any difference. But they do what they're told and the nets are filled. John realises it must be Jesus who's back on the shore, but it's Peter, as impulsive as ever, who jumps into the water and swims back to shore. The other disciples are left to row the boat back to shore with the nets full of fish. And we're told that it's a huge catch. In fact, it's one of those really bizarre little details. 153 fish, John tells us. Do you know how he knows that? Because he was there. He saw this happen. He counted these fish. When they arrive back on the shore, Jesus has the fire going and he's already begun cooking them breakfast. Now there's a detail that you could really easily overlook, isn't it? Jesus is on the shore cooking breakfast for the disciples. It's a remarkable thing, isn't it? I mean, here he is, the son of God, the one who died and rose again from the dead, cooking breakfast for the disciples. But I suppose it's just in keeping with Jesus' life, isn't it? The one who washes his disciples' feet, the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus only record, uh, sorry, John only records a handful of miracles in his gospel, seven of them in all, and, and this is the last of them here in this chapter, this miraculous catch. But as with all of the miracles that John records, there's an important lesson that needs to be learned. And you see the lesson that starts there in verse number 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? That must have been tough for Peter, mustn't it? In fact, I wonder if he'd actually been waiting for the question to come. 
I mean, he must have known that it was going to come. I mean, after denying Jesus three times, after deserting Jesus in his hour of need, he must have known that the question was going to come. But I bet it still stung. And it would have stung that much more when Jesus asks the same question three times. I think it's pretty obvious why Jesus does that, isn't it? I mean, Peter denied Jesus three times. So Jesus is going to ask him three times, do you truly love me? But I think it actually goes a little bit beyond that. Back in John chapter 13, when they're in the, in the upper room, there's a, a conversation that takes place, a conversation where Peter pledges his commitment to Jesus. Jesus is talking about the fact that he's going to die on the cross, and this is what it said. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. Peter makes this very bold statement about his commitment to Jesus. I'm going to lay down my life for you, Jesus. And in just a few hours from that time, he's going to be denying that he even knows Jesus. In fact, when he's confronted by a teenage girl, he will say, never met him, don't know him. One minute, boasting about his commitment to Jesus and the next minute denying that he even knows him. Well, the irony is Peter will lay down his life for Jesus and Jesus even gives him a glimpse of how that's going to happen. Back to chapter 21, verse number 18 says this. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old... You will stretch out your hands, someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Might sound a little bit ambiguous, but then John says this. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then said to him, follow me. So what Jesus is actually saying to Peter is this. What happened to me, Peter is going to happen to you. Someone will dress you, just like they dress me and put that purple robe on me. And and they'll take you to a place that you don't want to go. They'll take you to a cross. And they'll stretch out your hands and nail you to the cross. One of the things I love about Peter all the way through the Gospels is that he's that dumb, impulsive one. That he always puts his foot in it. Whenever Jesus wants to say anything profound or significant, Peter always has to chip in with that kind of... It's the Homer Simpson moment, isn't it? You know, He's almost the Homer Simpson of the New Testament. You just can't believe that he actually said that. And it happens here. Immediately after Jesus says... You're going to die a martyr's death. And that's what he's saying to him. Peter points to John and he says, well, what about him? And Jesus effectively says to him, well, that's none of your business. If I choose for him to stay alive until I return, well, that'll be the decision that I make, but it's got nothing to do with you. 
Well, what's the main thing that's happening here? What is it that stands at the very heart of this chapter? Well, I think it's the fact that Peter is kind of being reinstated. More than that, Jesus is entrusting to him an extraordinary task. After Peter has denied Jesus three times, I I, I bet he must have been wondering where he now stood. See, prior to the cross, Peter was really the leader of the disciples. He was the kind of head disciple of Jesus. But after denying Jesus three times, can he seriously expect that he's still going to have that role? Well, Jesus says to him that he's to feed the sheep. Do you remember what Jesus said back in John chapter 10? Talked about being the good shepherd. This is what he said. I am the good shepherd. Jesus is saying this. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as my father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus says that he is the shepherd. But do you see the task that he's giving to John here? He's saying... You are to feed the sheep. Now don't underestimate the significance of that. That's not a little throwaway line there from Jesus. This is big stuff. Peter is being called to care for God's people, to feed them, to see them grow, to bring them to maturity and to bring in those sheep that are not yet part of that sheep pen. Did you know that we sit here today... Because Peter and others did that? I mean, it's the only reason that we're here. We didn't come up with this by ourselves. We didn't figure this out. It's been passed on to us, first from Peter, and then through the other disciples, and then through those who've heard and believed. We get to feed because Jesus entrusted that mission to Peter. Just a matter of a few days after this breakfast on the beach... Peter was standing before a crowd of more than 3,000 people who became followers of Jesus in that one day. Peter's the one who stood up in the Council of Jerusalem and argued that they need to make sure that they take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world, that it's not just a message for Israel, this is something that the whole world needs to hear. The man who had failed Jesus so badly in his moment of need is now entrusted with the ongoing mission of Jesus to the world. I've got to say, that's enormously encouraging, isn't it? I mean, think about the business world. If Peter had let his boss down that badly, the way that he'd let Jesus down, do you still think he'd be in line for a promotion? Do you think he'd even have a job at all? I don't think so. But this is the man Jesus chooses. For all of his faults, for all of his mistakes, for all of his failings, Jesus uses Peter. But I suppose we shouldn't be surprised by that, should we? I mean, it's the principle that's all the way through the Bible. I mean, think about any of the leaders that God chooses to use and as soon as you can remember their names, you're remembering what their failings are. 
I mean, you've got Abraham. Well, hang on, he's the one who tried to pass off his wife twice as his sister. You've got Moses who wants to say to God, I can't do this, send somebody else. You've got King David. All flawed characters. The principle that God is working on is summed up quite beautifully in 1 Corinthians, the book that we're going to start looking at in a few weeks' time. This is what Paul says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him. That's enormously humbling and enormously encouraging, isn't it? So it means that God is able to actually use flawed people like you and me. It means that no matter who you are, no matter how much you've stuffed up, God's able to use you. Remember back at school, remember choosing teams for sport? Captains were out the front and they get to choose who they want to have in their teams. And the chap captains would always choose the, 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 the sporty, agile kids. The uncos, the, the uncoordinated ones, they'd be left to the very end. They'd be the, the last ones picked, if they were picked at all. Well, Paul says that the church is made up with all of the last picked. God hasn't built a church according to 21st century business principles In fact, he's chosen to do quite the opposite to what people would naturally tend to do. In a world where strength is important, God says he chooses the weakness of the cross as the means by which he will save people. In a world where wisdom is important, God says he chooses the foolishness of the gospel to draw people to himself. In a world where choosing your team carefully is important, God says, I'll have all the uncos. How'd that make you feel? See, for all his faults and flaws and failings, Jesus chooses Peter and entrusts him with this incredible responsibility. In some ways... I couldn't think of a better way for this gospel to end. 